Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am thrilled to say that this episode is made possible by the wonderful people at Hatch Outdoors. Hatch reels are made in Vista, California, and are entirely machined from bar stock aluminum. The famed Hatch synthetic multi-disc drag system is sealed, requiring no lubrication or extra maintenance. Ranging in weight sizes from 0 to 16, Hatch has anglers all across the globe taken care of. Check out their website at www.hatchoutdoors.com. John Hazel is the sort of man you don't forget. Strong, bold, honest, and forward-thinking, John can't help but leave an impression on his audience. Perhaps this is why he's been so important to the development of spay fishing for steelhead in the Pacific Northwest. John began guiding 37 years ago and has been a key influence to our sport, specifically on the Deschutes, where he and his wife Amy live, guide, and run a fly shop. I stayed with John and Amy at their place in Maupin, Oregon, to see if John might share some of his opinions and insight. Uh, you know, April, I spent, uh, I think, 37 years out here now working the river pretty much year-round. Um, and uh, it's, it, it, that, that experience has shaped who I am, okay? I didn't come into this uh, industry with any other ideas other than the fact that I was going to be the best fishing guide on the river that I work, period. That was my goal. Someone asked me a question, I could answer it honestly. So that takes a lot of research, takes a lot of time, you know? I'd say that... Uh, it's equivalent to any PhD or any three PhDs out there when you look at a resource and you understand the flora, the fauna, above the water, below the water. Uh, you study the trout day in and day out. So that's who I am. I mean, that, that experience has shaped me for the last 35 years. Were you born here? No, I was born in just south of Portland, Oregon. But my grandfather uh, had two boys um, one of which was my dad, and neither of them liked the fish. So when I was old enough to to kind of swim, mm-hmm. he brought me out here about every weekend. To the Deschutes To the Deschutes River. Wow. And, you know, it was a great experience because now I look at uh, bringing kids out here. We have a policy in our company. We don't take kids under 15 years old, Period. You fall in the river, six minutes later, they're 300 yards downstream swimming for their life. And I remember coming out here at eight years old and falling in and fishing and running up and down the banks, and it was a great experience. You know, in those days, you didn't worry about that. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's it's liability, liability, liability. But, right. you know, we were always, well, we could always swim, but it's a powerful river. It's a big river. It's, you know, it averages 275 feet across. 
it flows at roughly 5,000 CFS. So if kids fall in, it's over. Anyway, make a long story short, I came out here every weekend I could, which is about every weekend in summer, and, uh, and knew that this was the river that I like to be on. Why? Why this river? Well, uh, first of all, the season's open 12 months out of the year, mm-hmm. number one. So the weather is sunny 300 days a year. Uh, the trout feed 300 days a year. Most people think, oh, John Hazel's a steelhead guide. Well, yeah, I am. I've been a steelhead guide. Uh, that's pretty much what I enjoy the most. But in order to make a great living, you better be able to guide something else, too, because you need to be able to work 275 days a year. So mm-hmm. it forces you to be a trout guide. And I love trout fishing. I've always loved it. But, uh, you know, and, and it's actually a trout fishing is way more sophisticated you know, steelhead fishing is about the easiest angling methodology on the planet. Uh, trout fishing takes infinite skills in casting, understanding entomology, reading water, experience. You know, you've got one cast to catch the fish. That's the biggest moment of opportunity. The second cast, that opportunity closes down to about 80% closed. So you do it right the first time. It takes a huge amount of skill. So you know, guiding trout anglers is a fun, fun game when the, when the trout fisherman has a fine, fine set of skills. Right. It's the most painful thing in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, because the average public thinks, here's this big ditch, trout swimming bank to bank, <laughs> put my fly out there, it should get eight. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and it's that mentality that drives me. I can't even, I can't even watch a trout fisherman fish anymore. Yeah. I, I get physically ill. Well, when did you start guiding? You know, I, my first year of guiding was 1978. And, and how, uh, how old are you now, John? I'm 61. So yeah. you've been doing this a long time. Yeah, a long time. Do you think you're burnt out? You know, I don't know what burnout means, okay? Um, do I? I have more enthusiasm to get out there every day than almost anybody I know, providing that person has some skills, okay? The... the and what I was getting at is, you know, let's go out and hire a fishing guide, April, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, heck, we're going to get into fish now. I mean, that's everyone's idea. Okay. And what they don't realize is they have to come to the game uh, knowing how to play the game. Prepared, yeah. Um, so, like I said, you know, I, I've got a, a certain select clientele I've been guiding for 35, 36 years, 37 years, however long it is. I love guiding those guys. Those are those guys are my family. Some of them are fantastic fishermen. Mm-hmm. Some of them aren't. And uh, because we're so close, I can tolerate climbing the tree and getting the fly out and tying on tippet material and and talk about cast number two because the first cast was fouled up. Right. right? <laughs> we can talk about that and it's still fun for me. Um, and uh, I realized early on in this game that at 61 years old, I can't guide 275 days a year anymore. So, you know, I uh, created a crew of, of guides, uh, got a staff of guides, and those guys are hand select. Every one of them has been recruited by me. I've got no one in our company that came in with an application or a resume. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. So I've taken a lot of time, handpicked these guys, spent a lot of time training them. Now, I don't want them to be little John Hazels. I wanted, I wanted to be able to give them a, like a, a Spock mind warp, mm-hmm. save them 30 years of learning. If I could give them what I understand, and then they can build from there, and they have. They've got the really brilliant, brilliant guides. But that was my way out. So people say, are you burnt out? No, I'm not burnt out. I'm super selective on who I take out now because I can be. If I had to go out and guide every day, everyone that knocked on my door, take them in my boat, I I wouldn't be burnt out. I'd be in prison. Right. Okay. (laughs) So, so, you know, I love to go to work, but it's, 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 you know, it's not burnout. I don't like that name. I know what a burnout guide is. Burnout guide is a guy that doesn't want to be there. He's got to be there. He's got a mortgage to pay. Okay? I want to be there. When I, before I even put my boat in the river, man, my nostrils are flared. The hair on my arms just went up. I want to be there. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it's a good guide. You can't take that out of them. They want to be on the water. I like to take 
every little opportunity I can to do whatever the day can provide us. Meaning I need that skill set from the angler to take care of the really cool stuff that happens every day, right? That's kind of where I am. So if I can't, if I can't take advantage of, of that with the skill set that's in my boat, then I'm, I'm not having fun. And if I'm not having fun, why be out there? You know what? There's lots of guides who fire clients. I don't know about firing clients. What happens is, is you no longer have any time on the calendar to take them. Yeah. Yeah. You it's, just, it's a black book. I've got one. Yeah. You know, you get blacklisted and it, usually for me, it's somebody who's rude to staff or this one guy had left like 30 pieces of chewed up gum in various places in his you know, yeah. room and my yeah. sister had to clean it up. And so there's just, there's some people who you just don't want to deal with anymore. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's in every walk of life, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's, there's, Plenty of businesses that fire their clients. Just let them go. Right. Life's too short. Now, but, as a business owner in the fishing industry, what you just said is very interesting to me and, and, and really respectable. You said that you hand-select these guys and you train them and, and you, you genuinely do want them to be the best they can be. I see that in you. Yeah. And I see uh-huh. what your relationship is with yeah. Amy. I mean, it's amazing. But it's something that's a big concern to a lot of flash up owners and, and outfitters. They think, if I train this guy, he's going to do what so many other guides have done over history, or maybe what I even did myself, and turn around and start his own guiding company. So how do you make sure that you're not investing in these guys and then they're becoming your competitors? Well, some of them have over the years. You know, everybody wants to be the big dog, right? Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, when you, when you look at the amount of money that a guide makes, he's out there on the water and he charges $600 a day. And by the time you take out all the costs associated with your trip, I mean, you're living hand to mouth. It doesn't matter. Uh, so a lot of these guys aren't smart enough to do the math. Okay. And they realize that, oh, if I go out and work for myself, I get the whole 600. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, they get, our guys get paid very well. They work really hard, but I, they get paid very well because because they need, first of all, to get paid well. I want everyone to be happy. And, and I, want, I want them to be able to make it a way of life. What happens to a lot of guides is they realize, oh, they meet the right girl, they have a baby, the family starts, and realize, geez, I'm just not making enough money to put my kids through college. You know, you can do that as a guide. I mean, you can make a lot of money as a guide if you're good, if you're really good, you know, and you're not working for tips. I tell the guys, it's not, the, the name of the game. If you come to me and say, listen, that guy's a jerk. You know, he gave me $40 for a tip or whatever it was. You know what? If you're working for tips, you're in the wrong business. Yeah, big time. Um, you've got to be working for the love of it. And if you if you do, chances are you're going to be darn good. Uh, chances are you're going to be tipped well. But not everybody tips well. I mean, they just, a lot of people don't get it. Yeah. Um, but... You know, I think everyone needs to make a great living, and uh, these guys want to get on their own, and they just see pie in the sky, and they realize, oh, my God, I've got to be the administrator. I've got to take books. I've got to make reservations in motels. Uh, and pretty soon, you want to talk about burnout? It's these young guys that never went to business school, never had any other real major administrative job. Now they're trying to run a small company, and they get buried in complicated messes. Do you think that they break free because they... Because they really want to deal with their own financial freedom or because of their ego or both? You know, I don't know. I think that both, probably. Everybody, you know, the fly fish industry is small enough where everybody kind of wants to be a big fish, you know. And and that's understandable. Everybody wants to be a big fish in their industry. Um, And I I think as long as you're bringing something new and exciting to the table, uh, you're going to be a big fish whether you want to be or not. Period. All you have to do is bring something to the table. Take the sport to a level that it that that contributes something to the sport that makes a positive difference at any level, and you are now a big fish. And f- most people would do that unconsciously if they're really good at what they do. Right. That's just something that comes unconsciously. Yeah, you're so right. This and is- uh, and boom, all of a sudden you you know. Your 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 clients respect you. Your peers respect you. Da 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 da, because that's who you are. Mm-hmm. You came to the table. You brought it to the table. There's no BS. What you see is what you get. Um, and those kind of guys are rare. I mean, you can go to any state in the West 
uh, you know, the, the guide fraternity is not very big. I, I think I've met most of them, particularly the old guys, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, every one of those guys that, you know, are my age or even older now that made a career out of it, every one of them brought something to the table. Every one of them. And I see these young guys now, and they got their license. Uh, they get, get their guy's license, their insurance. They've got their GPS. They spend three days on the river, GPSing all the John Hazel and company boats, first stop, second stop, third stop, fourth stop. Boom, I got this down. Let's go into business. And, you know, that's only part of it, you know. I mean, that's just a small part of it, but they think now they're ready to go. I know where the big dogs fish. We're just going to move in. All the spots. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't change our program. I tell these guys, guys, you couldn't pucker me up on your best day. On your best day, not even close. Because I don't have spot A, B, C, and D. I go through the whole alphabet. Okay? So, you know, I just, I want all the guides to be successful. I want them, uh, not, not just my staff, but all the other guides out there. Yeah, because you're pro-industry. Yeah, but, uh, you know, completely pro-industry. I just want them to bring something to the table. I don't want to hear any complaining. I don't want to hear any bitching. Uh, yeah, the world's getting smaller. Population's getting bigger. No, nothing's like it was in yesteryear. Get with it. That's just the way it is now, right? And you have to develop a program based around that. Uh, the opportunity out there for fishing is as good now as it was when I was a kid. Maybe better in some ways. Do you have to be better? You've got to be bloody good, you know. Uh, it's catch and release. And once you catch and release trout a few times, they get super duper smart, right? Uh, it's catch and release steelhead, you know. Once you catch a steelhead a couple of times, they get smarter. Um, so... You know, you've, just, you've got to be better and better and better every year. You've got to be a better dry fly fisherman, a better caster, a better nympher, a better streamer fisherman. You, the, the level of skill that you have to bring to the table now far exceeds anything that we needed 35 years ago. Wow, that's very interesting to hear. Yeah. So what do you think that's doing to our catch rates? Well, and, and, and you know, the catch rates are, uh, you know, to me... Catch rates never meant much of anything, right? Um, you think that a, a resident trout lives in the river, you should be able to catch the son of a gun. I, I oftentimes, I spend most of my time stocking trout, hunting trout. I don't want to fish for trout in a big blind ditch. I want to find a trout, study where he lives, watch him for sometimes an hour, and go, look at that beautiful animal. Look at how he feeds. Look at the amount of distance he covers in between rise forms you know they all have a pattern they're, they're an animal the same as a bird the same as a, a deer a reptile they all have these patterns of of living in their environment and it's cool to study and watch so for me i could sit there and watch one trout feed for an hour and not even make a cast to him because i know that geez there he is I'm going to put a cast up there. It's going to come up and eat it the first time, and then boom, anticlimactic, right? So I'd rather watch them than fish for them. Now, my clients would rather fish for them, and I like to watch them fish for them, but, but I'll make them look at the fish, watch the feeding pattern, and 45 minutes later, first cast, boom, he gets it. He gets the fish. Now, what is that worth? I mean, the guy thinks he just accomplished the impossible, Right? Mm -hmm. um, that's a huge deal. So that one hour or, or hour of the day was one fish. Puzzle, problem solved, success, pat on the back, great feeling of accomplishment. You don't need to catch 30 fish a day. Why would you need to catch 30 fish a day? I've never understood the numbers game. Yeah. Did you ever do snorkeling? Did you ever go snorkeling with the fish to get a better Oh, not on the Deschutes. It's not a great snorkel river because no. it's moving so quick. <laughs> but uh, I used to live on a little uh, river in southwest Washington that would snorkel in low flows, and they let you get right up to them. It's, it's pretty cool to see. They realize you're in the water with them, and they're careful, but it's not like they rush out of the pool. Can you learn a lot about fish behavior by doing that? or is Maybe. It maybe you can. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I learned much about fish behavior snorkeling. It was great to, to, to watch them, but they're aware that you're in there with them, particularly in small water. Mm -hmm. 
fish behavior is, you know, something if you look from the outside in and they don't know you're there, that's when you can really understand fish behavior. So you need clear flows, right? What was the last thing that you saw a trout do that surprised you? Oh, you know, I mean, everything that trout do kind of surprised me in a way. So it's, you know, there's all sorts of little nuances to, di- to different trout. You know, one trout I caught, I remember, and I I, I caught him uh, earlier in the season. And uh, I noticed that when he was small, he must have been hooked by a steelhead hook or something because his right eye was was completely covered over, glossed over, uh, old, old injury. And he was feeding left eye. Just he had only he had only come up and feed kind of with his left eye, and he was he was turning uh, to his right. He mm-hmm. was turning to his right. And uh, and I brought my client up there to the same fish because I'd already released them weeks before. I said, "Oh, look at the way that guy's feeding. You know, he's he's left eye dominant." He goes, "Oh, really? Oh, yeah." And he puts a cast up there, and the fish takes. And he says, "You're right. You're right. That fish has got his eyes covered up, right?" So. My point is that that was kind of fun, but my point is, is, is fish do amazing things. I mean, uh, you take you take a hatchery fish, for example. I remember one steelhead a fella caught, and uh, it was a nice hatchery steelhead, summer run on the Deschutes. It had both maxillaries gone, both pec fins, oh. vent fin gone, ventricle, both ventricle fins gone, what? anal fin gone, adipose gone, dorsal gone. What happened? Every to well, it had been clipped. It, every fin on the fish had been clipped. Period. By it, uh, by somebody at the hatchery. Just some, you know, they hire kids to come in there and seasonally help clip, fin clip the fish. So somebody was being cruel. By somebody them? was being a jerk. What? A, oh wow. Anyhow, so this fish came back. It was a two salt fish at about eight pounds. Came back and ate this guy's fly. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Amazing. Not a fin on the fish comes and eats the surface fly. So the fish had to move, you know, 15, 16 feet to eat the fly. And I got him in, I'm going, this is the oddest looking fish I've ever seen. And sure enough, not a fin on it. It was an odd, it looked like a burn victim. I mean, you know what I mean? It just, yeah. there was, it just was. And the, and the, the customer thought it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen Aww. in his life. <laughs> his first steelhead, right? Yeah. And you didn't, you just didn't want to say anything disparaging about the fish. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, so fish do amazing things. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're amazing animals, you know. In uh, your opinion, how long does a steelhead specifically sulk for after it's been hooked? I tell you, I don't know for sure. But what I used to do is I used to carry a paper punch with me. And on this little river I lived on, I'd go fish every morning and every evening. And I caught one buck steelhead, about 13 pounds, and I'd punch his dorsal fin. This was back in the early 80s. And I went back there the next night, and I caught him again, and I punched it again. So now there's there's two times that fish has been caught in a 24-hour period. Wow. And I went back the next day, and I caught him the next day, and I caught him again the next evening. Okay? Just in your, I'm not fishing just for that fish. He was just in the beat that I was in. He was always in the same spot. So my point is, is they can get they can get caught and released many times. That's very interesting. Um, so, I, you know, I, a lot of times somebody will hook a fish and lose it, uh, and and pitch it back out there in the same spot and go, God, I think I got him again. I said, Pal, you didn't get him again. Okay, I can tell you that right now. You don't hook a fish with a hook. And then have them come in and eat it on the next cast. There yeah. was another fish in there with them. But but sometimes people think that. It's kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, it'd be like, you know, uh, hurting, uh, you know, it's just peculiar how people think. But anyway, you know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know how long they sulk for. I know that uh, you can spook a trout if he's feeding heavily and he might be gone for 10 minutes Right, mm-hmm. and he comes back, and his business is normal. But I don't, you know, I don't know about steelhead. But so, what about the shop? You started to spend a lot of time in the shop. Well, the shop is um, the shop was my way out of outfitting in case something ever physically happened to me. Right, that was my exit strategy. Excellent. Uh, the shop allowed me enough exposure to the public where I could hire uh, guides. That's where my staff, if they're not on the river, they're helping out in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, the shop was a place where it was just, it was, it was a way to diversify uh, our financial interests in this limited industry. Mm-hmm. When we opened up the shop in Moppin, Oregon, population 400, <laughs> the shop was about 350 square feet. Uh, people thought I was crazy. And now it's probably uh, just under 5,000 square feet. Uh, and it, it might be one of the most successful shops in Oregon, in a population of 400 people. But we get 40,000 people a year coming out to mop and to fish. Wow. So it's a great spot. You know, people don't have to try to find parking. It's just park wherever you want in Moppin and walk in. And if it's made, if, if it's made uh, and if it's any good, we carry it. I mean, that's I'm not all things to all people, you know. If you can buy it at Bymart, we don't stock it. If it's well made, and you know, we're about 99.99% made in the USA type of shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, we, we take a lot of pride in that. But people can come in and, and ask for uh, help, and we're there to give them help. You know, our motto is, is our, we hope our motto is uh, pretty much to make everyone a better angler. That is what we're there for. And sometimes it's just information, sometimes it's gear, sometimes it's both. But I think if, uh, if they walk out of our shop and they're juiced, they are juiced up, they're ready with a new attack plan on how they're going to be a better angler today, uh, we've done our job. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you're one of the original guys who was fishing a double-hander here in North America. How did you manage to get that information and to um, learn how to do that? You know, I tell you, uh, um, one of my good buddies, Randy Stetzer, uh, and we kind of grew up together as kids, Stetzer, Berkheimer, uh, myself, we were all fishing buddies from the time we're in our, they may have been in their late teens, maybe I was in my early 20s, but we all lived close together and uh, we all fished together and and somebody gave Randy, one of Randy's buddies or somebody gave him an old fiberglass two-handed rod built from Hardy Company and it was a 14 foot 10 weight it was was really horrible you know the butt section around was bigger than a cork grip on any two-handed rod today Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a double taper line and we started going out and casting this thing around and pretty much decided it was a great idea but horrible equipment and, and put it away. And, and somehow or another, um, I got a hold of that rod and started playing around with it more and more and more. And, uh, and, and, and I knew there was a possibility we could adapt this into steelhead fishing. About that time, Berkheimer started his rod company. We're in the early, early to mid-80s right now, uh, maybe early, yeah, 83 or 84. Berkheimer started his rod company. I got together with Carrie and said, we need to build one of these, a good two-handed rod out mm-hmm. of carbon fiber. And uh, little by little, we got one built. And then we, you know, just prototype after prototype after prototype. And boom, bam, uh, we got rods that were casting. 15 feet long, 10 weights, 10 or 11 weights. Those were the first rods made. And I went to, I did some work with Don Green, who was at Sage at the mm-hmm. time, and we developed uh, Sage's first line of two-handed rods, and I did some work uh, for Gary Loomis. Uh, all about the same time, Loomis, Sage, Berkheimer all came out with 15-foot 10 weights because that's that was the first rod that I, I designed. And that was the status quo for a couple of years, you know. So I had to build lines for these rods, and... Uh, and I was making lines and selling them out of Kaufman. So I'd buy the lines at cost, uh, cut them, splice them, da 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 Which lines were you buying, the double taper? I, I was buying, you know, like double taper 10 through double taper 12s and cutting the tips off and giving them a longer forward taper. Um, and and uh, you were able to cast floating lines, and you could easily take the, first, the, the tip of the taper off uh, and put on a sink tip. So it was really kind of the beginning of... of you know, versi lines to speak of. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing like that was being done in Europe at the time or the UK. So that part of it was very innovative. It was a lot of fun. Right. Um, people complain about the cost of fly lines today. You know, and, oh, geez, that, that 
fly lines $100. Well, back then I was selling these lines for $250 a crack. Seriously? Seriously. I mean, you either bought my line or you didn't have a line to use on your two-hander, period. (laughs) So it was a great little cottage industry. And, you know, lines and rods morphed, and uh, I read a book, Alexander Grant, uh, on Atlantic salmon fishing, written in the 1890s, maybe. Yeah. And he had very crude line drawings on how to make these casts work, and that's kind of what I used and visualized in my head. Um, And then I'd have bay casting clinics every weekend, every Saturday and Sunday for for years back in the, you know, in the mid to late 80s. People thought it was just crazy. You know, Coffins, the guys I used to work for back then, just laughed at me going, you're, you're just crazy. This is insane. Who's ever going to use a rod that big? <sighs> well, and as it turned out, you know, it was the two-handed game probably saved this industry, at least the West Coast of the United States fly fishing industry. Can you elaborate on that a little? Well, I mean, you know, it's fun. I mean, the spay casting game is fun, and it's it's not something you have to devote an entire lifetime to to get good. You can take a beginner, and in 20 minutes, they're pretty good at some basic casting, which which allows them to have fun in fishing, right? Right. We couldn't do that if we gave someone a 9-foot 5-weight. There's no way we could teach them how to be a, even a reasonable caster in less than hundreds of hours. Hundreds of hours. And in... Five hours, you can have someone using a, a two to eight weight spay rod, pretty much putting it in the target zone every time, whether it's windy or not, right? So it allows more people to enter the sport with some success, which is what makes them continue on, right? So what about people saying that the industry or that the... Um the amount of people getting into the sport is declining. Is that true or is it starting to come back up? You know, I don't know. I, I mean, all I see... Uh, the, the data seems to suggest that angling is starting to decline, but the, the presence of anglers on, a, on all the great rivers that I've been around seems to be getting busier and busier, so I'm not sure how that works. Maybe less spinning gear licenses are being sold. I mean, people that want to use the resource in some consumptive way, perhaps that segment's going away, but... Um, as far as the catch and release population of sport fishing, I just see it getting busier and busier and busier every year. So do I. Yeah. Now, downstairs, I looked at one of your rods that you had custom built, and it's beautiful. It's got, it's, it's got a very interesting handle, though, and, and Amy was explaining that you don't like to have cork running all the way down the blank because it takes away from the feel of the rod. Can you explain a little well, bit about Well, yeah, that? I mean, every caster has his own deal, right? Yeah. I mean, every every shotgunner has his own opinion of how a gun should fit, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I like to feel the rod bend. I, I just I like to feel the fiber in my hand. And the closer I get to the fiber, uh, the more sensitive I am to the rod, and that's what I like. So um, it's just a little teeny grip, barely enough cork on there to cover the shaft, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what I like. I've let other people cast it, and it, they think it's heinous. Oh, yeah. Right? They, they can't cast it. Okay. Okay, so it's, uh, all it is is esoteric jazz. But when I feel the rod bend in my hand, it just is magic. As soon as I hold on to a big cork grip of the standard two-handed rod, it, it feels like a tool. It's no longer a, a paintbrush. Mm-hmm. It's a hammer. Okay? Yeah. So I guess that's the reason I like small cork. Coming up, John speaks with me about guiding experience, fish photos, and giving back to the fisheries from which we take. The hazels are also strong hatch reels advocates. The tight tolerance between frame and spool means no more tangling with skinny running line that gets trapped and reversed. I've lost some big fish that way, and hatch simply removes the constant checking and worrying. After all, there are more important things to be paying attention to when out on the water. Visit Hatch at www.hatchoutdoors.com and be prepared to make one of the best fishing investments you've made so far. Do you think you're a strong personality? You know, I don't know. People say that uh, maybe it's a little strong, but 
I just believe in saying how I see it. And before I say much about anything, I look, I study, I listen, I watch. And then they go, John, do you have an opinion? I go, when you're ready, I'll give it to you. Um, yeah, I mean, only a personality in the fact that if, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And if you're going to spend enough time to do something well, you're going to have an opinion. Yes. That's what happens. So what's in your future? What, do you, what in your ideal world, how does the future now go for John and Amy Hazel? I tell you, um, you know, if someone told me 35 years ago I'd still be guiding steelhead, or even, even better yet, I'd still be fishing steelhead, I would have I said, oh boy, I don't know. You know, we've seen the we've seen the resource in its highs and its lows over the last three plus decades. Um, the, the resource have had highs and lows in the last sixty decades. It, it'll probably continue to be here. We've tried to kill steelhead our whole industrial lifetime mm-hmm. in the U.S. And no matter what we do, they keep as providing they have water. They keep finding a way to come back. So, so I think with today's. Uh, you know, with with the people out there working to protect the resource today, I think we'll always have wild steelhead rivers. Certainly not as many as historically we had. We've just lost too much habitat. But we'll always have steelhead. We'll always have a chance to fish for them. I think that's great. I, I want to do uh, more fishing. You know, I spend a lot of time working now. And uh, I think Amy and I will do more fishing. I love bird hunting. Not to, uh, you know, not to shoot birds. I love watching my dog. So to me, bird hunting is what fishing was to me uh, 50 years ago. Every day is exciting. I just love to see what the dogs are going to do special that day. And I, I've got to shoot one or two obligatory birds so the dogs don't think I'm a complete moron. But, um, but it's, really watching, it's really fun watching them, uh, you know, that hardwired capability of what the dogs can do. And, and fish are the same way, you know. Fish are hardwired. It's fun to watch fish. You don't need to catch them. It's right. just great to, you know, to watch steelhead move into a shallow tailout and watch another batch of steelhead move into the same shallow tailout and see how the big fish push out the smaller ones and everything has its place in the river, right? That is as much fun as it is to fish for them, right? Um, I feel I feel bad when I when I hook a fish anymore. You know the fish comes up and he bites on this wire hook and you know that kind of makes me feel bad now. To be honest with you. Yeah, because I hear this from a lot of the the guys as they get older. Yeah. Um, they no longer really want to fish as much as they just want to be there and know the fish are there. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, it's not uncommon. I mean, I've taken the bend of the hook off of the pair of pliers and just brought steelhead up to the skater, you know, and that's fun to know they're there. It's yeah. pretty spectacular. I don't know how many steelhead you have to catch um, before you've caught enough, but but I've caught enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to see them. I don't, I don't even want to handle them anymore. Uh, if I can bring them in and my clients, uh, we bring them in, I, I just take my pliers and I just touch the hook and that barb comes out. We don't even have to handle the fish anymore. Right. I guess that's, you know, the, the less we touch those fish, the better I like being out there. So let me ask you this then. Because you are so strong with your opinions and you stand up for what you believe, which I respect immensely. How do you handle clients who want to do the huge grip and grins and hoist the fish out of the water? I've taken lots of those shots, you know. I've, I've, I've accommodated those guys over the years. Uh, and that's part of the growth. You know, I think that's part of the awareness. Um, so is your philosophy- I'm not going to criticize anybody that's holding a beautiful steelhead. We've all wanted that shot. I, I can't tell you how I used to visualize myself holding this 30-pound <laughs> steelhead, right? I mean, we all had that tendency to want to do that. And then when you think through it and you've caught enough fish, you realize it's not about the picture anymore. It's, it's about the fish. It's not about catching the fish. It's about... It's about having that animal in our wild rivers, that wild fish in our wild rivers. That's the important. That relationship of seeing it up close is cool because most people don't get a chance to do that every day. 
So we can be pretty much like smug jerks and, and tell people, no friggin' pictures, no touching that. You know, if a guy wants a picture, I don't have a problem with it. I will, I will hold the fish. Um, I'll have him get his camera. I mean, I, I, I tell the guy, is your camera on your body? He goes, yes, it is. Okay, is it, is it easily accessible? Yes, it is. Okay, I'll get it. I'm going to tail this fish, and you're going to keep it underwater. I'm going to transfer it to you. You're going to lose it. As soon as I transfer you to the fish, it's going to swim out of your hand, and it's gone. It's released. That's what's going to happen. And 99% of the time, that's what happens. Every once in a while, the, the guy will do it, and, and the fish is held underwater. Everything's nice. Uh, and I say, lift, lift, shot, back in the water, off it goes, one shot. You know, you can do that. You can do that, and there's no harm done to the fish. But I want these guys to realize that it's a lot of work trying to get a photo. It's, it's more work trying to get that one good photo than it was to get them into the steelhead, right? I agree, yes. And so I, I, most, all my clients now realize that, you know, I know Hazel's not, up, you know, not into taking pictures, right? Yeah. And so we don't. But, but I understand the importance with the young guides and, and my staff understands the importance, and that's how they deal with it. So, you know, um, you just you got to deal with it in a way where you can be responsible and hold your head up high and say it's about the fish, number one. It's about the client, number two. I like it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to throw out three questions to you, and I just want you to, to kind of elaborate on your thoughts. For steelhead, specifically with your flies that you're fishing here in the Deschutes, feather wing or hair wing and why? I don't care, you know. We can talk flies for hours and hours and hours. I think a little fuzz on the hook is just as good as any of it, right? So I, I fly to me means nothing as long as you look at that fly and you go, God, I love this fly. If you love the fly, for whatever reasons, pick whatever reasons you like, then uh, then fish it. So, I, you know, I... I'm a fly tire. I love beautiful flies, but I also like simple flies. The simpler the fly, the more I like it. So, I, you know, I don't really have an opinion. When someone comes out and fishes with me, I go, what fly feels good to you? And they'll show it to me, and I'm looking at that, and I almost, I almost shudder. I go, <laughs> I wouldn't put, do you really like that? I go, yeah. Okay, tie it on. All right. Um, so I think that's, it doesn't really matter to me, you know. I like smaller flies than big flies. I like taking steelhead on my terms, not on anybody else's terms. So for me, it's a skater. It's a size 8 hook, maybe a 10. And that's what I like. That's how John Hazel fishes, you know. If some guy says, well, boy, I'll get a lot more on big stuff, I go, God, that's great. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, I mean, that's the nice thing about fishing is, is you can take them on, always take them on your terms. When you get comfortable with all the terms, you can pick your terms, right? But, you know, so, is, you know, have I fished all the terms? You know, for thousands and thousands of days. Now I get complete relaxation enjoyment on my terms only. And I wouldn't force that on anybody. I don't come up to my guys and say, boys, only skaters today. A lot of my clients will, just, will go, John, only skaters today? I go, only skaters every day, right? <laughs> right? So, but they never come to me and go, well, what happened to the fish? How come we didn't catch anything, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because only a small portion of fish in the river are going to eat a fly to begin with. And only a smaller portion of those are going to eat a skater. So, I mean, you've got to be happy with, with those results, do you find that it's mostly small fish you take your skaters? No. They're not selective? No, you know, this, I think this is, the, this is the beauty about skaters is wild fish certainly eat skaters better because they grow up in the wild. So if you've got a, if you have a, a fish that is, is spawned in the natural environment and he spends 
two years of fresh water before he goes out. He's keyed into the macroinvertebrate. That's been his whole life is eat anything that moves in that river. Hence the Dean. What, they're there for four years? Well, and some of those fish will be three years in, in, in fresh water, some of them even four. Mm-hmm. The longer they're in fresh water before they outmigrate, the more they come to a surface fly without question. How long are they in the Deschutes for? You know, two years is our average wild fish. Um, but, you know, it's rare that they would go out in a year. Uh, all the hatchery fish spend one year in a hatchery, but they're eating food, right? They're eating pellets. I don't expect to have many hatchery fish to come to the surface fly. They do. You catch them. But for every one you catch, your fly's down over 400. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but the, but wild fish, you know, doesn't, so it's not so much how many years they spent in the salt, which would be, you know, four to six pounds, one salt, seven to nine pounds, two salt, et cetera, et cetera, three and four salt fish. It's how many years they spend in fresh water before they out-migrate, which I think is the key right. to be oriented toward the surface fly. I totally agree. Yeah. The fisheries I fish were, um, the fish are more prone to taking dry flies. They're in the water. They're usually, in t- you know, quite far up in the interior and they've been there longer. Let's talk a little bit about the Deschutes, just geographically. I mean, it looks very similar to the Thompson to me. And I know that recent studies have shown that a lot of those steelhead actually, um, you know, after they're basically born in the river, they never leave. They, They become resident rainbow trout, if you will. So, well, specifically the males. The females typically have to leave because they need more energy for their eggs, et cetera. But a lot of the male fish, uh, the male steelhead just don't leave. What about in the Deschutes? Have you found that? Not so much. No, I mean, we, we definitely have a, our, our, residents, our resident trout population here. We call them red sides, right? Uh, big red band trout, pretty much found in the mid-Columbia Basin. Um, and they have a very distinct look about them. Uh, big froggy eyeballs, a huge red lateral line, dark olive backs, kind of just, just gladiator-dressed beautiful specimens. I know that in some of the rivers in the interior of the Columbia Basin, you might get residualized steelhead more so than the Deschutes. We don't really have a problem with residualized steelhead becoming or competing with the native trout population. Have you seen it? On occasion, you see it. You know, on occasion, you'll see you'll catch a rainbow that might be 16 or 17 inches. Certainly hasn't been to the saltwater. Mm-hmm way silver, more silver than our, our resident red band. Um, and that might be, uh, but for the most part, we don't have a, we don't have a problem with steelhead residualizing in the Deschutes. They, most of them just get out. Very cool. Yeah. Good to know. Uh, clients, number one error that you see that makes you want to pull your hair out that people listening might be able to fix themselves next time they come fishing here. You know, I tell you, um, I love my clients, so I'd never say disparaging thing about any one of them. I love them to death. Yeah. But this is one thing I'd tell any client that's thinking about uh, hiring a guide. Uh, do your research when you hire the guide. Don't look at price tag. Don't look at... Just do your research. And then if you, if you want to get good, I mean stupid good, ask the guide to fish. So if you're trout fishing, ask the guy to work one rip-rap wall and watch what he does, how he does it. Just watch it. And I'm telling you what, right now, the next rip-rap wall you fish, you're going to be 10 times better. Mm -hmm. If you're going out with a steelhead guide, have him fish the entire run and watch every move he makes. All you have to do is emulate that approach, and you've just taken 10 years mm-hmm. of lessons, right? Now, it's um, so hard for them to do that because I tell, I learned uh, so much about my angling just by fishing behind people better than me. Yeah. And uh, I try to tell that to, to clients and friends, and it's so much easier to say. They don't listen. Just people don't listen. They, they, they get itchy feet. They have to get yeah, in the water and yeah, start casting. Yeah. That's a personality thing. You know, I mean, that's just a personality thing. And, and they're out there to have fun. It's their vacation. It's their money. But that is, that's, if you want to get good, that's a small price to pay, particularly if you really have a lot of respect and trust with your guide. It's the best investment you could make. Now, most guys hate the fact that you're going to, 
But I get it. Someone asked me, said, John, I want to I want to watch a fish down this run. I hate the fish behind people. I, I'd, I'd rather have a toothache than fish behind people because um, my cadence in the water is about 10 times faster than anybody else I know. Oh, so you work fast. I work quick. When I get to the sweet spot, I, you know, I nurse it a little bit and then keep moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to give a guy a 300-yard head start. Right. Okay? Um, and, and, and then I see some weird casting going out down there. I'm going, well, this wasn't, this not virgin water anymore. You know, I don't get any enjoyment out of jacking a fish behind somebody. All that tells me is, well, yeah, there, there's one you missed. Big deal, you know. Um, what I like is fishing completely unmolested water. To be the first guy on the run in the morning. It hasn't been touched. It's perfect. There hasn't been a boat over it. There hasn't been anything. You take a big smell and you go, oh, you smell that? Yeah. Oh, oh, the hair on my arms just went up again. <laughs> It's the most beautiful feeling in the world before you even make your first cast. Yeah. At that point, I could actually not make my cast. Just walk away from it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it's all about to me. It's not about, you know, let's, let's go down here and see how many we can jack. But, but it's, all, it's, all part, it's all part of the game. You know, I, it's, uh, it, it's, steelhead fishing is my whole life. It's... Um, it's everything that's important to me, steelhead and the rivers they live in, is just, it's ingrained in every detail of my life. I, we give enormous amounts of time and money back to the resource. And I would say that to the, all you young guys out there listening. You know, put your time and your money back into that resource. When your clients watch you do that, they will then step up to the plate and emulate you, right? So guys have a lot of power out there with the public, but they have to be the example. They have to be the people that set the example. They set the stage. They write the play. And now they direct all their clients to getting the job done, which is saving our wild fishery. That's the guy's responsibility. Um, and that's, that's what I hope my young guides will do. That's what I encourage them to do. And they do. In what way do you encourage people to give back? I know I'm 1% for the Planet member. And people think I'm crazy because it's 1% of my gross. Well, a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So do you suggest that people give random donations? Do you suggest that they're 1% for the Planet member? Well, it's but- really easy for my staff. Because when I recruit them, I tell them what I expect them to do. And what's that? Well, I expect them to donate X amount of their time for free to give back to this resource. Okay, so time instead of money. Yeah, Time sure. and money, whatever they can Well, I mean, you know, they have time because I create the time for them. Right. Okay? Yeah. So they give, and when they get done giving, they love it. Um, some of them also give money, don't get me wrong. But, but, I'm, but the outfitters, it's the outfitter that owns the company. I want those guys to give time and money. That's what I'm talking about. All right? right? Those are the guys that need to step up to the plate. And so many people out there are short-sighted. Are outfitters these days getting easier to work with? Do you think that it's getting more difficult? I mean, what's your opinion on the guiding industry here? Well, I tell you, you know, I, 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 for so many years I had it to myself. I just, it was just me. And, the, and, and you wonder, God, today was slow. God, I don't have anybody to talk to. I wonder if today, I wonder if fishing was slow for everybody. Well, there's nobody out here. Yeah. Right? Uh, and then, uh, you know, as we got busier and, and we were able to bring staff on, uh, it was cool having another guide out there because you could pair, compare notes, right? Mm. Well, now, heck, you got to, you know, there's nine, 10, 20 boats a day putting in with you, and they're all guide boats, right? Um, there's a lot of guides out there, and uh, I just, um, the, the ones I like are the ones I know, and there's a lot of ones out there that I don't know. They've never come up, introduced themselves, um, so I don't, you know, I don't know much about the young crowd, but the guys that have been doing it for 15 years plus, I think we're all the best of buddies. And uh, we loan each other gear. We loan each other trucks, boats. I mean, it's a small fraternity. Um, 
and I, I love them to death. But there's a lot of the young guys that have not even even come in and introduced themselves. So I'm going, God, I wonder what that's all about. Intimidation, I think. Well, I don't. They shouldn't be because I'd embrace them. You know, I mean, anyhow. So I don't know. It's just busier. There's a lot of outfitters out there. Yeah. And I think you know, I see them for a year or two, and then all of a sudden I don't see them again, and gone with the wind. So. You know, there's a few younger guys, I hope, that are really doing a bang-up job that will be able to uh, continue the, in the industry for, the, you know, another three decades. I, I know my guys will. Yeah. I think everybody working for me is, is, I don't see anybody getting out anytime soon. They, they love it. It's part of who they are. Last question. Boats. I hear that you're a pretty mean uh, rower down that Deschutes. Tell me what somebody who doesn't spend a lot of time rowing should know if they were to bring their drift boat here. Well, you know, you have an immense respect for, for water, number one. And I've always said I'll row anybody's boat anywhere, anytime, but not my own. Okay. All right? Yeah. So that's, that's one way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, rowing's fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, the more experience you have, the, the, the more respect you have for the river. Is there a reason why you prefer drift boats over rafts? Well, they're easier to row. Less work on the shoulders, right? Uh, faster to go from point A to point B. Easier to articulate down real sticky, bouldery water. You just have more accuracy with a, a rifle than you do a handgun, right? You can just put a drift boat where it needs to be when it needs to be there, and rafts not so much. But, no, I just, you know... Heck, I don't know. I just, everyone has a boat. All of our guys have different boats. They all love their boats. I love my boat. You get used to a certain boat, and that's what you like to row. And as soon as you change the boat, you, you lose the feel, yeah. right? You know, I'm not, I'm not real big on, on power boats. And, uh, you know, they, they just, there's a place for them, and those places are in rivers that, uh, that you need to helicopter into, and there's no boat ramps, and there's no roads, and there you go. Um, I'm not big on them on the Deschutes just because, you know, the river flows downstream, and it's nice to be able to to keep kind of that cadence of moving downriver. Uh, I, I, I'm not big on the powerboat sound. It's a little industrial for me. Uh, and I'm not big on the erosion factor that they do to the rivers. If you don't need to have that erosion factor, then don't do it. But it is cool to be able to go back upstream and hit that one run that you did so well in the morning, right, later in the day perhaps. But, but you know, I, I mean, I'm not on a campaign to get powerboats off. It's just, it's industrial. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of stuff. And it takes away some of that beautiful solace that we expect from our outdoor environment when we go out to fish. So you guys don't run sleds at all for your trips? We don't. Uh, okay, let's move forward. Last question. Is there anything you would like to add or ask me? You know, no. I mean, I think you're doing kind of a cool job is that you're bringing an awareness out there to the public with your podcast that... Uh, Right now, nobody else is doing it. And it's kind of cool to bring that awareness out and, and maybe to, to, uh, to get everybody kind of in the same playing field, playing the same game. We don't all have to tell the same story. No. But it'd be nice if we you know, all played in the, in the same game. We all, we all make a contribution to the game. Because uh, I'd like to see it continue on. And I'd like to see it get better and better. And uh, I, there's no reason why it shouldn't. So, um, yeah, I just, I think you're doing a great job. It's pretty cool. And, and, you know, hopefully there's some really smart guys that are coming out and, and getting into this industry that really get it and make their mark, you know, and just, and make, and just make their mark on making this a, a better place to recreate a better place, better, cleaner water to cast your fly, healthier wild, wild fish populations so our great-grandkids can fish for them. Um, we don't need to catch 50 fish a day. And, and you know what? After about two steelhead, in my opinion, you should stop. Call it a day. <laughs> Enjoy it. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it, I think hopefully your podcast will help keep things in perspective. I hope so. Yeah. 
and and, and I, I thank you for doing that. We'll see where it goes. Well, thank you so much for coming on and giving me your time this morning. But thanks. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. Thank you for your support. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.